0: America used to value all kinds of things like community, purpose, and fairness, but now it kind of feels like virtually every decision gets made based on what will make the most money. My guest today has a dream and a vision that this is changing. He has created a manifesto for a more generous world. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of Still Being Molly, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, companies, and small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I interview an entrepreneur, a CEO, a nonprofit director, a community leader, or just an incredible person who is trying to make a positive impact on the world. My goal is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact wherever you are. My guest this week is Yancey Strickler, who is the co-founder and former CEO of Kickstarter, the mission-driven global public benefit company that helped to really pioneer crowdsourcing. He is also the author of the recently released book, This Could Be Our Future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World. I have been a big fan of Yancey's work for quite some time. Obviously, I kind of knew him through Kickstarter, and I was so excited to have him on the show today. And this was just such a fun and really interesting conversation, and I know that you're going to enjoy it. So without further ado, on to my conversation with Yancey. Yancey, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm so happy to have you.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you are somebody who I have kind of loosely followed your work over the past few years. And when I saw that you were coming out with a book this past fall, I was just like, all in so I am really excited to just kind of welcome you to the business with purpose podcast and introduce you to the community if people are not familiar with your work Um, and also just kind of dive into a topic that I am really interested in and I know you are because you know you wrote a book on it so um, but before we do all that I would love for you to do what all my guests do and that's give us the Yancey 101 so tell us who you are and kind of how you got to where you are today
1: Yeah. So I'm talking to you today from Los Angeles, where I've been the last couple of years. But I grew up in southwest Virginia on a farm outside of Blacksburg. I grew up evangelical. My parents divorced when I was young. You know, I went to Christian school through fifth grade and then went to public school from there on out. And my dream was always to be a writer you know, I living on a farm, I, we had no neighbors and I just had to entertain myself and I did it through reading and writing. And that was always my dream. And I went to college and studied that and moved to New York city after college kind of on a fluke and made a living as a music journalist for about 10 years, reviewing records, writing about, uh, musicians for the village voice and spin magazine, things like that. And then during the midst of that, made a new friend um, who'd ended up inventing crowdfunding, Um, Perry Chen. uh, We became friends, and together with our friend Charles Adler, the three of us created and launched Kickstarter. And Kickstarter introduced crowdfunding to the world, pioneered it, normalized it. Today has generated, you know, four-plus billion dollars to creative projects. And we also became a public benefit corporation along the way and really put a lot of effort into governing the company according to The values that felt most deeply true to us based on our unique backgrounds and just what we thought that community needed. And then I was the CEO of Kickstarter my last four years there and then stepped away two years ago to write a book called This Could Be Our Future, a, a manifesto for a more generous world that explores kind of the water that Kickstarter and that all of us swim in and really tries to untangle what our role models for success are, why our... Companies and communities or and families are geared towards certain ways. And what's the optimistic take for those things evolving in a direction that I think most people would like them to evolve towards? And so I'm at the very beginning of that journey now.
0: That is so such a cool kind of transition from you being a writer to sort of this startup type world to now you're back into being a writer, but really kind of taking all of those experiences from your life and, and your professional life and your personal life and kind of meshing them together into this book. Um, but before we get to really the the meat of the book, um, I want to go back a little bit. Um, I am also a Virginia native, by the way, so I did not know that you were also a Virginia native. Where? So what town did you grow up in?
1: I grew up in a place called Newport, Virginia. It's yeah. in Giles County, about a half hour outside Blacksburg.
0: Yeah. So my sister went to Virginia Tech. So I spent yeah, a lot yeah. of time in that area. And I I grew up in Herndon, which is like northern Virginia outside of D.C. Went to college yeah, in Newport News. Yeah. And I went to college in Newport News And in the in the peninsula. Lived in Richmond for a couple of years before I moved to North Carolina in 2009. So um did you go to college in Virginia?
1: Yeah, William William and Mary.
0: Oh, I went to Christopher Newport University, which is like right next yep. door to William and Mary. Love it. I yep. love it. That's so cool. So already I like you because you're a fellow like <laughs> native Virginian. Um, so you know, I, I always love to ask this question, especially for people who have really seen, you know, they've seen success in their professional life. And obviously Kickstarter being the pioneer of crowdfunding just like you said I would love to kind of know what in your maybe childhood or even teen years or even kind of in your into your college years is there anything in particular during that time that you think most greatly influenced your passion and your drive for helping others and kind of what you did at Kickstarter
1: I mean, it's funny. I mean, it, it feels like a natural progression of my life in a lot of ways. I mean, my my father is a musician, um, like a country bluegrass player who made a living selling waterbeds while I was growing up. And um,
0: Waterbeds. Ah, yeah, ah, the a, 80s and 90s.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's a traveling waterbed salesman in, love the, it. in the 70s, 80s and 90s in the South. It. You know, he always wanted me to be a musician. So there's like, there, there's this arts part of me that was there. But I also grew up, you know, in a very active church and certainly had a lot of ideas about sort of responsibility that came from that. And then like the music I was personally into, I liked sort of indie rock and punk and things like that, which had a, a strong ethos of like don't sell out and kind of being true to your community. You know, you don't mm-hmm. get big to then like exit out of your community. The right thing you do is you lift up your community with you. Yeah. Um like I was a Nirvana kid in high school and that's <laughs> yeah. Like, Kurt Cobain was amazing at that. You know, their last big thing was their MTV Unplugged. And for MTV Unplugged, they just had all their friends come, and they just covered their friends' songs on MTV at a time when, like, that was the biggest thing you could do for someone. So they—I just had a lot of role models that were about sort of lifting up others as kind of like that's what success is. Success is having the opportunity to do that and then doing it. So that just made a—it wasn't conscious, the influence it had on me. It's sort of only in— Retrospect as I look at my life that I can see these things. I mean even as I started working on this book I didn't think that it was like a Culmination of everything I'd done. It's not a you know, it's not a memoir. It's a, yeah. it's a manifesto But when I was done, I did look at it. and I'm like, oh, this is kind of if I'm bringing together everything You know sort of my life experience to date. It does turn out in this kind of way but I, I think you know even where I grew up, you know growing up in the country and like never having an accent And not even though my family was from the country, too, I I, I was just never really of that world. And there's just been a funny like challenge and strength I've always had in my life of like not quite fitting in, never fitting in anywhere. And that is the source of a lot of pain. And Mm. then there are other ways in which like being an entrepreneur or being a writer or being a thinker that it's very positive to be on your own because then you have the opportunity to like bring other people with you. So, you know, I, I I'm old enough to have learned that all my strengths are also my weaknesses and and that <laughs> you know any of these things, uh, yeah, they they just can play out in all kinds of ways. but yeah, there's there's some history there. it's not It's not a straight arrow. maybe Maybe my next chapter in life will sort of clarify what that narrative is. but but, yeah, I, I know what you mean.
0: Yeah. And I don't think honestly anything in life is a straight arrow. When I look back at my life and all of the random twists and turns that have taken me to where I am now, at the time it made no sense. But now looking back in hindsight, I'm like, oh man, I wouldn't be you know, here if it were not for that little micro decision I had made that just micro decision after micro decision has added up to Mm -hmm. all of these massive macro changes in my life. And you're right, everything is just kind of all around. And I relate so much to what you said, where you said like, you never really fit in anywhere, like having grown up in the country and not having an accent. And I'm like, yeah, you don't really sound like you're from Southwest Virginia because I have met some people from Southwest Virginia and <clears throat> they sound very different. Um, yeah. 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 And, and, and so, but I think that that is a really common feeling that so many of us have, where even if maybe on the outside, we look like somebody who would have fit in everywhere. I think there's a little bit in each of us that feels like, we don't fully fit in wherever we are or maybe that there's a part of us that struggles with that. And I mean, I grew up playing golf, which is like a really male dominated sport. And then, you know, I was in choir and, you know, it's just like all these things and growing up and then I did comedy, which is also very male dominated. So I was just always kind of marching to the beat of my own drum, so to speak. But, you know, it's those experiences that kind of lay the foundation to to how you see the world and how you interact with the world and all those kinds of things. So I really related uh, to that little sentiment because that's something that very hit very close to home.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally.
0: So I have to ask, obviously, Kickstarter being so huge, one of the things that I, I read about how you, you met Perry was like, you guys met in a diner?
1: Yeah, it's a, a restaurant where he worked as a waiter and I was a regular. It was called Diner. It's a nice restaurant. It's called (laughs) Diner. Um and uh yeah, I mean it was just it's a it was in Brooklyn near where I lived and I went there frequently and the funny thing about this restaurant is there are no menus. Instead the they put a piece of paper down on the table, like taped down, you know, butcher parchment paper. And the waiter or waitress sits next to you and then tells you the menu while they write it down on the paper in front of you. Hmm. So it's like quite performative and fun. And so we met that way. And, uh, and so we just became, we became friends cause we both love like basketball and, and yeah. And he one day after service was like, uh, you know, said he wanted to talk to me about an idea he'd had. And it was, it was the idea for Kickstarter, but this was in 2005. yeah And, um, and I didn't like the idea when he told me, I told him <laughs> that it reminded me of American Idol. And this is like, you know, 2005, I think that's Ruben Studdard's year winning American Idol. Um, and you know, more of that just did not, I'm like, why? how is that? What is that? What question is that the answer to, you know, but he, he, he put nicely just saying, you know, it's not about the mainstream stuff. It's about all the subcultures that just don't fit in and, you know, allowing a place for those people to share ideas and it quickly became exciting, but you know, it was so foreign. Like I had no, I had no desire or dreams to be an entrepreneur. And early on working together, I remember we had to go to Staples to buy a whiteboard for my apartment. And, uh, so we could like sketch things out and when we were doing it, I felt like a guilty thrill of like, are we allowed, are people like us allowed to buy whiteboards? <laughs> um, Scandalous. cause it's just, it was just a different era. Like yeah. the line between business and creative people was just like so much was a big one. And, and I, and I felt very anxious sort of stepping over that line. And, um, and I think, I mean, I think Kickstarter is part of the culture that's brought those things together for good and bad. Yeah. Um, but But yeah, it was, you know, these were very foreign steps that, you know, I felt very unsure of and was fortunate to have, you know, great partners and Perry and Charles and many other people we found that could make it happen. But yeah, it was a real it was really stretching beyond my comfort zone, to be sure.
0: Once you guys launched and you were obviously you were fully on board at that point and you guys put this into the marketplace and you know, one thing I know, you know, kind of down the road is it really became this community and it became about community, which is a lot of the kind of, I guess, catalyst for your book. But I'm just kind of interested in was there anything that maybe surprised you or was a bit unexpected once you guys launched Kickstarter? What, you know, kind of going into it, you're like, okay, people are going to get excited about some of these sort of more off-the cuff ideas or these, you know, small businesses or restaurants or all those kinds of things that people the community can get excited about. But was there anything that maybe surprised you in a positive way that you didn't expect when you launched it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we'd imagine like the system would work through passionate people sharing an idea and then people that care about that person wanting to support them. And that, that really proved to be true. I think the moment that was first most surprising was maybe two and a half years in the site was always governed by a set of rules about what it could be. And it was always about creative projects and we'd never had producty kind of things on the site before. Um, things you might buy in a store. And someone submitted a project to do something like that, uh, like to make an iPhone stand and we rejected it. And the creators ended up writing back with this really thoughtful email explaining how like they weren't musicians, they weren't photographers, they weren't writers, but they saw themselves as creative people and using for them using injection molded plastic was like a creative platform and tool. And, you know, they wanted to use the site in the same way all these other people use it and they've backed all these projects, et cetera, et cetera. And, it was a great argument and uh, and so we ended up allowing that project to launch, and then it raised like one hundred and fifty grand in a week. And then soon it was just like, you know, there were just these million dollar projects on the site. It happened really fast. and we had actually I mean, I wouldn't say that's a totally positive thing. We had mixed feelings about it, yeah, because the sort of the culture of the site changed a bit. You had people coming there to look for money. You had people supporting mm-hmm. projects that like weren't by their friends but were more a traditional commercial experience. And there's a lot of ups and downs to that. But yeah, that was like a real shift in sort of the level of activity on the platform, the level of responsibility in terms of governing it. And it really is just like the the tool interacting with a different type of person and who who saw, you know, a different way of how to use it. But the beauty of Kickstarter is that it's a, you know, it's just a platform that's there for people to put their ideas. It it should be you know, perpetually renewable by how many amazing creative people there are in the world. And, you know, the idea for success with Kickstarter is that the the person who has an idea they're thinking about that rather than tossing that idea away and not indulging their creative or entrepreneurial side, that instead, like, this is the place where they give it a shot and where they don't let that part of them die. We We used to think a lot about, you know, how creative you feel when you're young and how uncreative you feel when you're older. And how do we, how do you like keep that creative muscle going through life and not just sort of giving in to, well, someone doesn't like me, doesn't do something like that. Mm. that, That's where we like write these own stories that hinder ourselves. So what can Kickstarter be the place that's like, it's just easier to try than it is to not try. Yeah. And maybe there's a, maybe there's a collective gain that's made if, if we can get there.
0: Yeah. That's so interesting that you say that because I was actually having a conversation with a friend. Um, about this the other day because she was we were both remarking about how we're you know in our I'm in my mid-30s but she's you know she just had a birthday and so she's in what she calls her late 30s and she's like I don't know why my late 30s feels so much harder and you know, we, so we got in kind of a deep conversation about like where we thought we'd be or, you know, what things are we grateful for in this decade of our life? And, and then we were just talking about like, is there still time to pursue creative dreams or whatever it is? And, you know, I was remarking on, I mean, I think it was like Martha Stewart who didn't get her break in the, you know, to be Martha Stewart until she was in her 40s. And I think the same thing Mm -hmm. with Vera Wang, like Vera Wang didn't design her first wedding gown until she was like 41 or something like that. So, but there's this false narrative that somehow has been concocted in our minds and in our culture that if we don't pursue this creative dream until, you know, in our early 20s, then like, it's too late, you know,
1: (laughs) Well, I think that, you know, when you reach that, I'm 41. So when you reach this old, old age, um, you know, you <laughs> so young, you, can have, so young. you can have your panic of like, my youth is fading. Let mm-hmm. me go grab as much youth as I can. Let me get collagen injections and like drink the <laughs> blood of young people, you know, whatever whatever it takes, I'll yeah. do it, which of course, sure. I mean, why not uh, on weekends or something? But the other <laughs> the other way to do it, and I think the way I've just shifted is just thinking about how many like i'm at i'm at a kind of a peak of combining the experience i've gained in life and my op- my still being open to new ideas and the world changing and evolving and me having like some knowledge and some skills that i can apply to that yeah and to think okay maybe i have like maybe i have 10 to 15 peak years like this and so what should i accomplish with that and suddenly yeah just suddenly things that would maybe be well, that sounds nice. Instead, become more central and more imperative. And I think that for, you know, maybe for Vera Wang, maybe that is, I'm going to make the wedding dress. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's that same kind of energy. If it's just like, well, you know what? If it's not now, I don't know when it is, when it's going to be. I mean, there's a, one of my favorite writers who I like look up to so much, this guy named John Higgs. He, um, I met him for lunch a few months ago, a British guy. And I'm like, so tell me how long you've been writing. And he's written like four books I love and not much, he's not much older than me, he seems. And he tells me the story that at age 40, he had had like a dead end job and he, his dream had always been to be a writer. And at age 40, he was like, you know what, I'm just going to quit my job and I'm going to just try. I can't sleep well if I don't just try yet. And then he, you know, just, he just nailed it. And for me as a reader reading him, I'm like, I assume this is a person that spent his whole life like doing this craft. He's so good at it. But instead it was just like, I think he'd been waiting so long he was really ready. You know, it was, was really really ready to do it. But there's these moments, these, these sort of like uh, inflection point moments, these crescendo moments. You know, there's certain narratives about what they drive us to do, the midlife crisis, things like that. But I think if you, you know, think about it with a little bit more self-awareness, you can very easily arrive at like a burst of energy, but not going towards chasing youth, but going towards, yeah, like... I know how hard it is to do things in the world and I know what I'm good at. I've earned the right to know what I'm bad at. And now, you know, now I have the luxury and the, the opportunity to really apply those things while being like the best version of myself I've ever known how to be. Yeah. And then that's like, wow. Okay. So I have, I have some responsibility suddenly, you know, I have some power I have to step into and not hide from, but yeah, anyway.
0: Oh, that's so It good. was just
1: my birthday. So this is very this is all very Yeah. You know, this is all stuff I've really been thinking about.
0: Yeah, that's so oh, that's so good. Because I mean, we also as we age, I was actually I was saying to another friend who just turned 30, and I was like, now that I'm well into my thirties and have a lot of life experience, obviously. I mean, I was just saying to her that thirty actually to me wasn't as scary. And the more that I get into my thirties, the more that I actually really love my 30s. And because I feel like kind of going to the same point that you were saying is I feel more confident in my own abilities now than I did when I was in my 20s, because I feel like in your 20s, you just second guess everything. You're just like, I don't I don't know. Am I too young to do this? Like, can I actually do this? Or maybe you're overconfident, but you don't actually know what you're good at, Um, whatever kind of end of the spectrum you're on. But now it's just kind of like, no, this is, I know what I'm good at and, and I have a little bit more confidence in that and, and that some of that life experience, uh, like you were saying. So yeah, oh, that's so good. I'm gonna take a quick break from my chat with Yancey to share with you the new Spring-Summer 2020 collection from Seiko Designs. The Hopefully Yours collection has everything from handcrafted legacy leather goods to hand-woven and block-printed textiles. Each piece in this collection is truly something to be treasured and celebrated, just like you. We promise that these pieces are gonna become treasured items in your collection, telling not just a story of your personal style, but of hope, resilience, and belief. My personal favorites from the collection are the vintage satchel in the gorgeous mixed metallic leather, the striped tee that says be brave on the pocket, I'm actually wearing it today, along with the chiffon skirt in the Leo print, which I'm also wearing today. Both perfect for spring, but you can easily transition them into other seasons. They are on repeat in my closet lately. Every single piece in this entire collection is absolutely stunning. And I know you're going to love it. So to shop this incredible collection, go to seikodesigns.com slash Molly Stillman. That's S-S-E-K-O designs.com slash Molly Stillman. Now back to my chat with Yancy. Okay, so I want to talk about your book because, um so it's called This Could Be Our Future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World. And I, this is a topic that I love because obviously we all need more generosity in our life we all need a little bit more kindness and so one of the things that you talk about is how American culture and our country used to really value things like community and purpose and fairness but in business we've seen this shift where you know most decisions get made based on what's gonna make the most money and so when you have a business and obviously this is what I talk about a lot on the podcast or on this podcast in particular is really showing and highlighting those businesses or entrepreneurs that are doing things outside of the societal norm, the outside of the mold, and they're doing things for a purpose, with a purpose, and they're doing things on purpose, and they're really trying to make a positive impact on their communities, on their states, and um, on the culture as a whole. And you know, my dream, my my kind of personal dream is that that just kind of becomes business as usual. That business is is used more often than not, as a force for good and as a force for change and all those kinds of things. And so obviously, this was a big you know, topic that you wanted to focus on and write an entire book. So can you just kind of share with us, like, where did the idea for the book come from? And, and what did you learn and discover along the way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, this book started with a talk I gave while I was CEO of Kickstarter. Um, and it was a talk just sort of making the case around the time when Kickstarter was becoming a public benefit company. And so changing our expectations and our accountability from just being a traditional for profit company that is expected to just maximize shareholder value. And instead, as a PBC, we're legally required to balance that with producing a, a, a positive benefit to society. And so, you know, internally, we were making that move. And, you know, as I was looking at, sort of peer companies and the other people in our space, I just saw that everyone was operating according to this default belief that we'll, whatever will produce the greatest economic growth is just de facto the correct choice. And that there was just this easy shorthand. And so I talk about how there's this default sort of guiding decisions in businesses and, and in societies that operate that way. But but really what, what was so revealing to me and what colors so much of how I approach the book is that in in board meetings and in in executive discussions, you you get into debates where there is an outcome to a decision and say outcome A is a clear economic decision that could be predicted in you know XYZ ways. And then but there are some like downsides that are harder to pinpoint, but like you can talk about. And then option B is maybe the option that speaks more to those downsides uh, and tries to like mitigate whatever the negative effects are, but maybe is like you could also project that it's less profitable, that you get into these moments where you have to debate those two things and that nine times out of ten, the one that makes the most money will win. And, and even though most people in the room will agree that these other harder to pinpoint things are important, but they feel less rational and emotional rather than real. And so we get into this place of like an unfair fight where there's an economic argument and then then there's an argument for everything else. And even if the everything else is like actually more relevant to the discussion at hand, it lacks a a language. It's just not a level playing field. And, and so really what I was trying to imagine was like what is the world in which a future CEO, the person in my seat a generation from now, where it's less hard for them to make that decision. What would make it less hard? And to me, that was about expanding a dashboard of what like rational values are and the things that we really should be consulting with making decisions. And it also came down to a different way of thinking about self-interest, that today we opt for a view of self-interest that's all about now me, what I want to need right now. Uh, but in the book, I argue that's just a small sliver of, of what our actual self-interest is. There's also our future me, the older version, the older, wiser version of ourself that made all the right choices, that lived the life of the obituary we wish we could have. Like every day we create that person or we don't by the choices that we make. There's also the now us, the people who we rely on and who rely on us, our families, our friends, our coworkers. Of course, they should and often do come into our decision making, but not in any real real way. It's still in this like emotional, less rational space. And finally, there's this future us of our self-interest too. thinking about our kids and everybody else's kids, too. Like every choice we make impacts them. But we have a hard time thinking about those things. And so, uh, you know, I end up creating a structure and sort of a I think of it as like a loving framework that that helps us access these other forms of value and other ways of valuing that I think we objectively know exist, but are difficult for us to talk about, are difficult for us to make like rational, consistent decisions based on, and are difficult for us to collaborate on. And so... In the book, I'm I'm drawing out this world. I call it bentoism. And I, I sort of map, like, here's where we're all operating. And what makes Patagonia unique? It's that they can perceive future us. What makes Chick-fil-A interesting as a brand? Because they think of now us, because they give one day off a week. Uh, and they are just these ways that other ways of creating value that are not financially oriented and that I think display a lot more creativity and and are really what makes a lot of people stand out in the world. It's what makes... Patagonia and Chick-fil-A and Kickstarter unique and uh, and really in every category, like the market leaders, the most interesting people or companies are those ones that see things a little bit differently. And I think that this book explains what it is that those people are seeing and also teaches both businesses and just anybody how to do that themselves, how to create self-coherence and how to create value in multiple ways and not just a financial way.
0: You know, as you were talking, it almost kind of reminds me of just this notion of scarcity versus like abundance mentalities, and how mm. so often, you know, you talk to the type of person who just has a scarcity mentality in everything they do. And it's like, well, if they spend money here or they give money here, then they're not going to have money for this thing over here. Or if this person over here that is in a complementary field is successful, then that means they're not going to be successful. And it's just this constant fight against a scarcity mentality rather than You know, I mean, just from my personal worldview as a Christian, like I believe in an abundance mentality and I believe that like there is opportunity for us all. And that, you know, if I am making a decision that isn't necessarily in my own, you know, financial best interest, but I have to trust or know that like it's in the best interest of others that there's going to be another opportunity down the road. And um, I've had a lot of conversations over like my my kind of what I would call my day job. Obviously, I have the podcast, but I've actually been a blogger since 2007. And that's that's my full time job. That's that's where I get most of my income. And, you know, I made a decision with myself when I began to monetize that platform that I would never take a partnership or a sponsorship from a brand or company that, you know, didn't align with my values or didn't align with um, my brand, or if it was just something that I knew wasn't a good fit, I would always turn it down, no matter the dollar sign, if I knew that it wasn't the right fit. And over the years, I've had to turn down some pretty, you know, like five figure deals where I'm just like, no, it's not right. But I have to, I go into it with this mentality of that's in the best interest for the trust I've built with my Mm. readers. I don't want to, you know, devalue that. I don't want to jeopardize that, those kinds of things. And anyway, so that's just kind of what I was thinking about as you were talking, because I feel like that that's a big part of it. And did you find that to be true as well? Or was it or am I just like totally way off base? (laughs) Yeah, no,
1: I mean, it's it's a person. I mean, there's a lot of personal practice that goes into this. I mean, I think that I think that most people do a pretty good job of operating according to their values. Not, you know, none of us do it 100% of the time, but I think most people have that stuff in mind. It gets harder when we make collective choices. It gets harder with businesses and, and larger structures where they just tend to optimize for whatever the lowest hanging fruit is, whatever the metric is that's on everyone's dashboard, like financial value. But you know, I as I hear you talking about taking sponsorship, you know, it, it relates where. You know, in the book, I show how this bento uh, form is like a way to make decisions. And I've made my bento and I know what my values are in each box. And now me, future me, now us, future us. And I use decisions making it where I sort of ask each bento a yes or no question. And um, so one example I did, a a real life one, is I get invited to do a lot of public speaking. And sometimes it's by financial services companies or advertising companies, things that like I don't think – aligned with my values and in the past I've always said no to these things. I've always said no while at the same time feeling like angry to have been invited for some reason. And, um, and then after creating this bento, um, I asked my bento, I got invited to another one of these talks and asked my bento what it said. And so my now me, what do I want to need right now? I'm at my best when I show people the matrix, like sharing ideas, And so when I asked that part of my bento, should I do this talk for a company I don't like, it said, well, yeah, you should do it. You're showing people the matrix. My now us about how do I relate to other people? I'm about deep focus time, like non-phone, hyper-present time. When I asked my bento, does me giving a talk to this company I don't like meet that? Yeah, like I should do it. My future us values about creating a better matrix, like a world where there are still defaults and systems are slightly manipulating our behavior, but it's doing it in a more positive way that also like the question also said I should do it. But my my future me value, this like core value that's so central to me is this belief in not selling out. It came up earlier when I was talking about like the scenes I was in in high school. And so when I asked my future me voice, which tells me to not sell out, whether I should do this talk, that voice said no, that voice said no. And suddenly I saw this like angry feeling I'd had before. And I realized that this like future me voice that was saying to not sell out, it was like a bouncer looking out for my values. It was just this big dude standing outside. But because I was able to really see the whole picture of what was going on for me and I could see the ways in which doing this talk really fulfilled my purpose, then I had the right with a clear head and a clear conscience to like tap that bouncer on the shoulder and say, no, no, it's cool. I've got this. You can let this one in. And so I realized that by really being able to see everything going on in me and how these voices were conflicting, I was able to find the self-coherent choice, which was to do something that I didn't think I would do. And I assumed that I would do it and feel guilty for doing it. But instead, because I actually like dove into what I felt with some kind of structure and, and being able to understand myself more. I'm not only making a different choice, but I'm doing it feeling certain that it's like it is the right thing for me to do. Um, and so, yeah, as you talk about like those red lines you hold and just the things that are like so critical to hold onto for you to be you, uh, I think those things are incredibly important. And what I found with, with using the bento is that I can stay true to those things, but also that I'm also being led to decisions and outcomes that weren't what I expected. And yet I'm still feeling right with them because I can sense that I interrogated myself, that I am still in integrity with who I am, and that in reality I'm just, like, getting to know myself better versus, like, compromising my core.
0: Yeah, I love that concept that you've come up with and for people that might not be familiar just to as a quick overview. So, the bentoism idea and obviously like I have two young kids, so I have bento boxes for their lunch boxes. So, um for people that might not you know necessarily fully understand or, or kind of have seen this concept before can you just kind of briefly explain yeah. um, again kind of how the the bentoism and sort of like you know if you picture a bento box like for a lunch box but yeah, obviously yeah. So a bento a little box, bit more, so yeah. it's
1: literally so yeah so if you picture a bento box like a just a a, a food container with four compartments and a lid you know yeah. the the word bento comes from a japanese word meaning convenience and the beauty of a bento box is because of its compartments and lid it can hold a variety of dishes, not too much of any one thing. And so the bento is always a balanced meal, a balanced healthy meal. And the bento box also honors a Japanese dieting philosophy called Bu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full, that way you're still hungry for tomorrow. And so Mm -hmm. bentoism is the same idea for our values and our choices. And so I have one hanging on my wall next to me, but it's just a simple like two by two of four squares and the bottom left is called now me, and the bottom right is called future me, and the top left is called now us, and the top right is called future us. And so I have this image, You can I have a website bentoism.org that like leads you through the process, tells you what it is. Um, but it's like the lock screen on my phone. And so when I'm facing a decision, I look at my phone and I just think about these different parts of myself. And uh, it's something my wife and I, we've made for our family, we have a family bento. And so yeah, to me it's just like, uh, it's a compass it's a compass to who I am and what I care about, to what it means to being in integrity with myself. And it comes in handy all the time. It's it's weird how easy it is to lose sight of who you are. Yeah. But you know, we live in a, a world and a media environment that's constantly wanting you to be something different than who you are. Um, and so I found it to be a, yeah, there's the phrase, I never like the word, the phrase self coherence was never important in my life. But the past two years, I've really discovered that like what is it that I should be working towards in my own personal development? It is it is self coherence. It is is being true to my values, living up to the integrity of that. Yeah. And so the bento is a way to do that. And my maybe my favorite use has been using it to make a uh, my to do list each week. You know, I used to make I'm a to do list person, and my to do list would always be errands or whatever work things were going on. And instead, I start my week by asking my bento how should I use my energy. And what that does is it forces me to ask that future me version of myself, like what is important now? It forces me to think about like my relationships, what is important for them now? And so now my, my weekly to do list is like, you know, planning a date day with my wife, calling a friend, like reading a book that I think is important for another reason. It's a mix of now and the future. It's a mix of me and others. And it's just dramatically shaped, reshaped how how I think about my energy and my my purpose in life. And it's really just through, you know, just exposure and, and just kind of learning a new muscle memory.
0: I love that philosophy so much. And thank you for kind of breaking that down for those of us that might be not as familiar with it. But you're right. I mean, those types of habit and mindset shifts can be transformational in how we go about our life and how we live and, and how we live kind of for the now and the future. And, and we are kind of building a life that, We want to live and um, you know I love that question that that we get asked sometimes you know like where do you want to be when you're 80 like what do you want your life to look like when you're 80 and like my answer is always like I want my husband and I to gross people out with like being 80 year olds who make out and like are you know are still madly in love and you know I want my kids to be like oh gosh mom and dad like stop making out when you're 80 and it's like no like but those are the you know I want my kids to like enjoy coming to my house and I want my legacy to be a legacy of generosity and and all those kinds of things and so you know I say in the here and now like am I actually going to care about Instagram followers when I'm 80 Mm -hmm. am I going to care about you know this Mm -hmm. social media fight that's happening like am I going to care about the person who cut me off in traffic like the answer is no like Mm -hmm. no yeah
1: I had I had this like (laughs) this notion of using the bento to guide my energy happened in the month after my book came out yeah. and whatever the world record is for amount of times you can refresh social media, looking for positive affirmation. Like I shattered all of those records on a, <laughs> on a minute by minute basis for like a month. And uh,
0: Your honesty is amazing. I love
1: it. And, and, you know, got into some desperate places and uh, and eventually had a day where literally I was like, okay, so do I need to run a sweepstakes? Should I do like a Facebook Live? Should I offer people like nudes? What do I do? How do I get more attention? And I was just like, wait, what? what is going on with me? And uh, And I caught, I had to catch myself. And so I used the bento to reground it. And what's great is that Like that now me voice is still there. So I still get to express like doing a sweepstakes could be cool. Like all those, it's not that I'm trying to deny those things in me Mm -hmm. because they are a part of me. They are, they're absolutely, if I deny them, that gives them more power. So I let them out, but then I look at them in the context of everything else and you're like, okay, yeah, that's a little silly. Yeah. But I'm not, but I'm still like, honoring that I have those feelings, Mm -hmm. that I have those desires. Cause I, as much as I would want to make those things go away, I do not have that power or ability. Right. And so I want to honor them. I'm not denying them. Um, you know, I am selfish. I do want pleasure. Like those are, those are great things. Those can also be bad things, but like to deny them is worse than to get a handle on them. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's trying to let those things out. But also just putting in this context of like, you know, well, there's more to me than just that. And how do I remind myself?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, you know, in all of the research that you did um, for writing this book and you obviously had kind of a, a general idea in mind of what you were wanting to learn and all those kinds of things. I'd be curious to know what was, I mean, I'm sure there were obviously lots of things that you learned in doing the research, but is there any one thing in particular or that just really stands out among the rest that you learned in in the time that you were yes, working on yeah. this book? Yeah.
1: You know, my thesis was that financial thinking had become more dominant, but you know, I'm 41 years old and so there's life I didn't see and You know, who knows, like, is that real or not? Has it really grown? And um, so I was looking for just evidence of how are those values changed. And I found this study done by UCLA every year since 1966. And in it, they survey incoming college freshmen all across America about all sorts of things. And one of their questions is about their goals in life. And for this question, the students are given like 15 different life goals. They have to rate them as being either essential, very important, not important, or not essential. And there's one of these questions that has to do with money and it says, is it important? How important is it to be very well off financially to be rich and in 1970, the percentage of college freshmen in America who said being rich was essential or important was 28% that year. The number one answer for most important life goal was to quote develop a meaningful philosophy on life. And as about 85% of students said that was essential. The last year the study came out 2017 the percentage of incoming college freshmen who said being rich was essential was 82 percent and less than half said that having a meaningful philosophy on life was important. If you look at these values over time every value was was basically flat like unchanging The, the importance of family the importance of being a member of your community things like that all that is the same but the biggest change is that the belief in having meaning in life went just dropped and the belief in being rich went through the roof. And, and so you just see it year by year. And you know, one story of this could be, Oh, look at you know, those millennials, they're always millennialing being greedy, those greedy kids, <laughs> yeah. whatever that is. But no, this is a sign of how our culture has changed mm. also a sign of how much college, the cost of college has increased while pay has not. But to me, it just really mapped out like, Oh, okay. So I'm not, I'm not crazy to remember. This as like something that happened more recently than we think. And, The big takeaway, I think, from my book is that a lot of this thinking that we is normal now and that we imagine has been here forever is actually about 50 years old and that it entered the bloodstream during the lifetimes of many people who are alive right now and it really changed the way people thought and changed the way our systems functioned. So there's a lot I glean from that. One thing I glean is that these are also things that can change again. It wasn't like, it got changed, and they burned every key, and no one can ever do that again. No, this is just a sign that things are always changing. And um, and so I look at that. I look at that evolution that happened about 50 years ago, also with respect. And like, how do I learn? How do we learn from that? And how do we build on what worked about that shift in life and apply it to a shift in life that I think would be more beneficial? But I really try to approach this without blame or shame or anything like that. But just trying to observe what has happened and just really seeing. Really seeing that just in what college freshmen think just leapt out as like, wow, this is, it's been a profound change of our society and we've only barely been aware of it.
0: Mm, Man, that is so good. And I cannot wait to dive into the book and, and just even uncover more of what you learned. Um, and I think honestly, I'll just go ahead and say it. If you're listening, go buy his book right now. Um, so that he doesn't have to refresh anymore. I'm just kidding. (laughs) 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 Um, but yeah, no, go, go buy this book because I think this really is a conversation that we need to be having more and more, um, is just how do we cultivate a more generous world and how do we, um, you know, have conversations around these topics because it's so important, and it and it really can impact, you know, so many other people for generations to come. I mean, like you were saying earlier, I mean, the decisions that you make right now impact impact our kids later on in life, and and then the decisions that they make in, in, impact the next generation, and so it really does have a ripple effect. So, thank you for your work, Yancey, uh, both both at Kickstarter and creating just this community online and and a company that you know, it was not just in it for the profit and really for public benefit and obviously, and then all, all your work on uh, this book. Thank you for all of that.
1: Yeah. I, I accept all that wonderful gratitude <laughs> and I, I, I return it to you and, and, you know, and yeah, I mean, I would love for people to just engage, engage with these ideas. I mean, I, I'm, I think this is the macro story of what's happening in the world right now. And I think the world is shifting mm-hmm. and, um, but where it shifts comes down to the willingness of people to, to stand up, to lead, to commit themselves. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking to be a part of that positive change. And if people are excited and moved by this and want to get involved or get in touch, like I'm on the internet at whystrickler.com and then the site bentoism.org. If you want to build your own bento, love talk it. To other people on the message boards yes. there about how they did it. Like that's all there for you. So, um, Yeah, would would love to connect with your listeners, and yeah, it's a thrill to be here.
0: I love it. All right, well, quickly before we go, um, I wanted to just ask a couple of fun get-to-know-you questions because it's one of my favorite parts of the show. It's the listener's favorite part of the show. So, Yancey, are you ready for the get-to-know-you round? I think so. All right. Um, Question number one is, what is something that I would never guess about you?
1: I guess, like, the NBA is probably my greatest love of my life other than books in my family. Yeah, just love, love basketball, watch basketball every night. My, my wife and I are both huge fans.
0: Oh, I love it. Okay. Who are your teams?
1: Well, I'm a lifelong Houston Rockets fan, but we live in LA now and you know, we're, we're a LeBron household. So we're, 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 <laughs> di- we're down with the Lakers these days.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a Cavs fan, so I was yeah. a LeBron household. <laughs> so uh, who knows? I don't even know. I'm tough, yeah, tough. Yeah, yeah, it is what it is. Are you a college basketball fan at all?
1: I was growing up, but no, not not anymore.
0: Not anymore. Okay, so we're. I mean, I live in Durham slash Chapel Hill, so we're big college basketball. My husband went to Carolina, so we're big, big college basketball I mean, my, fans. In my here. Georgia,
1: I always like Georgia Tech. I mean, I I watch a lot of ACC, but I yeah, I was. This is where I'm like, you know, kind of the indie guy. Yeah. But I always rooted for Georgia Tech.
0: Well, yeah, that is very indie. I like it. I like it. <laughs> I like it. Um, what makes you feel the most alive?
1: You know, ec- exercise outdoors. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a point earlier this year I had my it ended up being a little hard on my body. But near where I live in L.A., there's just an amazing trail that's very jungly. And it's just like a dirt path. And I would go out there every morning and just run like I was being chased by wild animals. <laughs> and, uh, and cause I just wanted to feel literally, I just wanted to feel like an animal. I wanted to be an animal. And, um, and that, that's just a wonderful feeling. Um, dad playing, I play music, I play guitar. That's like when I've been sitting at my computer too long, instead of looking at Twitter, I intend to go and like pick up the guitar for five minutes to let out that energy instead. I'm sometimes successful at that. Yeah, physical things.
0: I like it. What was your favorite TV show to watch growing up?
1: I mean, probably like 60 Minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Even at like age six or something. Uh, yeah, that's
0: fantastic. I Honestly, love to picture a six-year-old Yancy watching 60 Minutes. I you
1: know, Murder She Wrote, right after followed by Murder She Wrote. <laughs>
0: Touched by an angel, yeah, <laughs> Doctor sure. Quinn, medicine woman. Totally <laughs> love it, love it. Um, okay, what part of a kids movie growing up completely scarred you?
1: You know, I didn't get to see a lot of things. I was I was in a pretty protected household, but. <laughs> I don't know. I remember the secrets of Nem being scary somehow. I think the first scary thing I ever really saw in a movie was Ghostbusters and the librarian turning into like a phantom at the beginning. (laughs) Yes, that's Um, terrifying. Yeah, but I remember I, I had this. I remember this the other day when I went to school. The next day, I told my teacher, and I went to a Christian school. And my nature is that I like I try to hide people from things that will hurt them. And so I told my teacher about the movie, but. In my retelling of that scene, the librarian turned into a big tree that was going to fall. That's what I told my teacher, um, you know, didn't want to hurt Miss Johnson's feelings. It might have been too scary for her. But anyway, you know, That's that was fantastic. One.
0: I love it. I love it. Um, OK, my last question is the question I ask all my guests. And that is, uh, Yancey, what does it mean to you to run a business with purpose?
1: Yeah. Wow. What a great question. I mean, I think it, it's about intentionality. I, I would have never been a business person if I wasn't working on a problem that I just cared deeply and personally about. So, to me, like the fact that it was a business was just a weird happenstance. For like this idea to become real, we had to start a business to make that happen. And so, to me, like I was always led—really, I was probably led more by the purpose part, and the business part was secondary to me. But yeah, I think if you're—I think if you're doing it right, it's just a it just doesn't feel like work. It's just naturally you are naturally extending yourself through the collaboration of other people to achieve something that you know is important. And, and to me, like the best part of Kickstarter was the team and being a part of a team and having that collective impact together. And like that is the power of business is it's, is it's ability to get people to collaborate towards shared goals. And so I, you know, I, I feel like a, a business with purpose is one that's using that energy wisely, and that it's it's achieving things collectively. I don't think it's even just collective outcomes, but it's achieving them in a collective way and doing it where the benefit is felt by all. And to me, that's just that's just the natural order of things. And where we are now is a perverted version of that, where fewer people have a say, but i I think things are trending more towards a world where you know, being a b corp is like not weird. That's the normal thing you know, yeah. and because uh, I just think it's, it's a far more pleasurable way to work and to make an impact on the world. Yes,
0: I could not agree more. Uh, well, Yancy, this has been um, just such a joy and a pleasure to have you on the show and to hear a little bit more of your story and um, all the work that you are doing. And I'm just I'm so grateful for you taking time out of what I know is a very busy schedule to, to be with me today. So thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: I'd love to know what you loved about this episode or something that you learned. If you do let me know on social media, you can find me at still being Molly or at business with purpose podcast on Instagram or Facebook. And don't forget to use the show hashtag business with purpose podcast. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If you are a first-time listener of the show, welcome. Be sure to visit the archives for past shows featuring amazing entrepreneurs and business owners who are literally changing the world with what they do for a living. And if you're a regular listener of the show, thank you for tuning in week in and week out. Be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Radio Public, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts, and click that subscribe or follow button. Clicking that button helps to make sure that you never miss a new episode of the show. And while you're there, would you mind taking a moment to leave a review? Leaving a review just really helps me to know what you're liking and how the show is personally impacting you. This show is produced by Third Wheel Media. Thank you so much for listening and go do something good with purpose on purpose.